and welcome to this week's HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm your host, Annabelle Collins, and this week I'm joined by Ben Clover and Alison Moore. NHS pay and terms and conditions have been dominating the news in recent weeks, but there is another group of often forgotten about staff who are on the worst deal of all. And we'll be discussing a recent HSJ investigation which revealed the extent the extent to which staff employed by a wholly owned subsidiary company are missing out. Also on the podcast this week, the trust that sacked a whistleblower who warned them about potential patient harm has been told to pay her more than £200,000 after an employment tribunal. We'll be talking in more detail about this case and what it says about the NHS's approach to whistleblowing. Both employment stories this week. Perhaps let's start with that second whistleblowing one. Ben, this is a, you know, naturally it's, this is a complex story. Could you just take us through how it all began? Okay, yeah. So this is a case of a consultant nephrologist called uh, Dr. Jasna Mikanovich. Um, she was at Portsmouth Hospitals Trust, uh, was there for about 17 years. Um, from 2018, sort of, the dis- it, it got into a disciplinary process because there had been a dispute over the safety or otherwise of this um, technique called buttonholing. Now, uh, she said that the trust had been um, uh, had been putting people in danger uh, by doing this technique, and it had led to kind of poor outcomes, uh, including death. Um, in some cases uh, for for patients, right? But that the trust and that people, some people in the trust were um, keen to kind of uh, show off some of the benefits of it. So presenting at conferences, that kind of thing. This, this is all, um, this is all in the judgment uh, and that gradually sort of relationships broke down uh, over it. Um, and after she felt sort of that the concerns about patient safety uh, weren't taken seriously. Um, she, the people were referred to the uh, GMC uh, and uh, and the CQC. Now, um, the sort of employment tribunal process, um, the judge, the judges found kind of multiple problems with uh, sort of the whole process. And, and hopefully, most people are, are lucky enough to never have to go through their employers or know anything about their employers disciplinary process but basically if you're a large employer um, then what you have to run um, kind of ad hoc sometimes is a sort of internal sort of justice system where where someone is basically referred and then investigated and then it's sort of presented to like an internal panel who are supposed to kind of function impartially uh, and then decide on sort of like the equivalent of a of a sentence um, and uh, which can include like dismissal um, or warnings and that kind of thing. Uh, and the panel found like quite a lot of problems with it. Sorry, the, the panel on the employment tribunal found quite a lot of problems on that. Um, and the the trusts case basically always boiled down to, oh, we didn't have a problem with her raising concerns just in the way that she did it. Um, uh, and that. Uh, the judges found very firmly against that line of argument. They said she did the right thing uh, in 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 raising concerns in the way that she did. Like I say, people got um, referred to the GMC um, over it. Kind of the CQC got involved, um, but sort of the case, 
even just from the judge's comments, the case raises quite a lot of um, quite awkward questions. I mean, specifically for Portsmouth, but also kind of about how whistleblowing is investigated generally. And, and the first thing to say is that in the, in the defence of employers, right, these are these are horrendous problems to kind of to have to deal with, right? Kind of you're, let's say you're a senior manager, right? You're not a nephrologist. You're not a subject matter expert. And suddenly half of your consultant body in, in one department say something's dangerous and half of them say it's not, you know, kind of what, what do you do there? Um, and one of the things the judges said is that throughout the case, there's a sort of dismissive attitude of Dr. McKenovich in that they basically just uh, took the word of um, of kind of the, the senior people on the other side. And and that was it, really. Um, uh, and they said kind of like, I mean, it did sound like the situation got very fraught. There was a, a mediation meeting where at one point, uh, literally everyone was in tears, including the mediator. Um, so, so these are often like not large teams where uh, the relationships can get really very um, bad very quickly, um, and that's and that's obviously a very difficult thing to manage. But the trust uh, in the, in the judge's comments failed on lots and lots of levels here, kind of um, breaching uh, quite serious uh, employment rules. So, for example. Um, in the judgment, it says uh, Dr. Mikanovic, uh on the sort of the day of one of her disciplinary panel hearings um, was offered by a board member the chance to resign instead with a good reference. Um, and then again, on sort of the day of her, um, you can have to forgive the, the legal language, but sort of of the sentencing, i.e. of the outcome, um, was again offered the chance to instead resign with a good reference. Now, the the judges said this is obvious evidence that the whole the process was a foregone conclusion. Kind of we you wouldn't do that if you if you were going to get like a a fair hearing, you know. Um, so that's two, two like some like very serious failings there. Um, and it's it's sort of it's worth pointing out that she she uh, worked hard from the beginning to sort of to to find to stress that this wasn't a personal thing because <laughs> um, because you do get uh, breakdowns in relationships that are nothing to do with patient safety um, and and that sometimes it, it it's worth pointing out kind of I read a lot of employment tribunals and sometimes the, the judges are quite firm but like actually there was no whistleblowing uh, aspects of this this was a personal breakdown but often people will it can often be the case that that one is thrown in there um, uh, kind of as, as an extra part of it. Um, so, yeah, so the most recent, the reason it was uh, in the news just recently is because uh, the the panel um, in the Employment Tribunal said she should be awarded the sum and it again sort of rejected the trust's case that, well, she'd contributed to her own dismissal from her behaviour. It said that, no, she'd done nothing wrong she'd acted properly um there and it's and sorry the case about the resigning the point about the resigning with a reference thing is also kind of troubling right because you wonder if if this is standard procedure well if this is if this happens in other cases i'm not saying it is standard procedure at portsmouth or anywhere else but if this happens at other cases um then 
you know, how many people are out there who rather than going through this difficult process um, and who, who there might be legitimate concerns about have instead been offered um, a good reference. Um, and and yeah. so they're out there in the system, perhaps, you know, causing causing other problems um, just because like this one employer wanted rid of them and this was the easiest thing to do. Um, so that's that's another kind of worrying dimension of this case. I suppose um, the alternative would be it's sort of implied a bad bad or bad reference or no reference. Um, to yeah. That, you know, that, that employee. Yeah, and there's like and these are super tricky kind of problems and kind of I, I've seen other cases where um, where the judges found fairly films like no this was about your conduct and I I quite firmly reject your uh, your um, assertion that this this was oh no uh, I was sacked for for raising safety concerns but this is a very clear-cut case the other way um, there's a sort of um, another notable feature of this which sort of goes to some of the wider uh, points which we can get to in a second, is that um, uh, under the trust dignity at work policy, um, that if you're if you raise whistleblowing concerns, it's a sort of recognition that this is an extremely stressful thing thing to do, uh, kind of because you're you're arguing with colleagues, uh, you're having to go through often you're you're being referred through uh, very difficult uh, disciplinary proceedings, kind of. Uh, you have to instruct like lawyers a lot of the time that you should be assigned a non-exec director um, just for your welfare, if nothing else. Um, and to, you know, I think that's also important for not making people feel that kind of like, oh, you now must take on this 300 million pound turnover organization completely on your own. You are and you are unsupported, um, you know, and maybe you are not allowed like on the premises or you're not allowed to talk to colleagues kind of like lots of things can make you feel very isolated the case this case found that although dr mccannovich was referred to a non-exec in this case that they never followed up you know they they weren't supported so mm. you can really see in this case like um like it it goes to show how difficult it must be in lots of other cases you couldn't really judge anyone who just took the easy way out um in lots of cases and you, and you and again it's troubling because you you wonder how many people do do end up taking these right even though they might have legit completely legitimate patient safety concerns are kind of like you know so this individual dr mckenowich uh, had to move house had to change job kind of it was a, a huge disruption like huge disruption uh, to her life mm. um just from trying to do the right thing um so yeah and was she was she able to work? This, this happened in 2018, and yeah. obviously it's, it's a long time. And yeah, yeah, she was dismissed from the trust. But you know, was she able to continue working? Yes. Yeah, so she found work in a in another county. Mm. Um, she had to sell like her home. She's like, mm. uh, you know, un unblemished disciplinary record for the 17 years mm. um, that she was at at the trust. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, the judges said kind of you know one of the things they had to do at the last hearing was assess her losses um and she had been so sort of assiduous in finding other work in like and while whilst trying to sell the house not an easy process uh for anyone um like getting up even earlier to travel to 
uh, another employer, mm. kind of like in, in, in a different county, mm. um, and you know, and not a nearby bit of a different county either. Um, so yeah, no, so she wasn't does and does have a substantive post now, but in in lots of cases that's that's not possible mm. for people. Like in lots of cases they can't work. Kind of in lots of cases, um, it is like a full time job preparing for one of these like yeah. just preparing for the trust's own processes let alone um uh funeral process mm. afterwards so you can see all those people give up you know because you're facing uh, an organization that you know can can spend an awful lot of money on its legal case you know um and in this case it appears to I mean, when when the judgment first came through, the trust said, oh, we're committed to transparency. I have to say, they don't seem to be, that hasn't been in evidence in their conduct subsequently. So I asked a fair amount of questions um, about, so they, so they said to the judge, um, oh, and we've done a senior, we've done a review, um, a, uh, I think a, a barrister-led review of how, of how we came to fail, um, in our governance is badly um and in the judgment it said uh in the judgment it said like oh this has been the findings of the review have been percolated through the trust like weird verb but it suggests sort of widely shared right um when i asked for a copy of the review they said like oh no this is uh legally privileged and for the board only um doesn't quite fit it's also how much did you spend on the legal fees for this because I think it's sort of important that people understand like large organizations can throw a lot of resource at this. Now, this is a consultant um, whose who's partner like, happened to be a solicitor, but in many other cases with less senior people without those connections, you might have a much harder time bringing an equally valid patient safety concern. Um, so that was uh, that was kind of troubling. Um, but yeah, there are sort of some wider implications as well, sort of in, in just in some of the process mm. here. Mm. And was there, is um, there the sense at all because freedom to speak up was um, the result of Robert Francis's report back in kind of 2015? But I don't really get the sense that it's it's um, given people more confidence to to raise patient safety and other concerns as you've just set out um yeah what do you, do you think the nhs is actually a better place for whistleblowers now after that i mean it doesn't i mean it's very hard to say scientifically because like lots of these cases never get anywhere near like the public eye at all kind of like kind of just just even getting referred to an employment tribunal kind of they, they change rules on on um payment for but it's become harder to bring cases to an employment tribunal um so so that data's sort of hard to get to but kind of anecdotally you don't see you don't see in judgments um lots of people saying but uh, but the freedom to speak up guardian uh initiated a full full investigation which i felt assured by you know, and, and maybe they did in some cases, and that, and that means it never went to employment tribunal cases. But kind of, you don't hear it mentioned often um, mm. in the cases that do come to come into the uh, into uh, the public domain. Um, so sort of notable by their absence, and you know th things like the uh, after something like a Francis report comes out saying, hey, here's some things boards should do, like 
uh, your dignity at work policy should allocate a NED to a to a whistleblower. Like that just didn't happen in this case. Or like, well, some someone was copied into emails, but they never got in touch. You know, uh, in this case, uh, the judge the judge pointed out. Um, I think I think another thing that's like a little worrying in this is sort of the it revealed some of the process um, about investigating clinical concerns, right? Um, in particular, a part of the part of the thing trust can do that like trust leadership can do when they are when they get a, a situation like this is like half department think this is safe, half department think it's not safe and point out that it is contraindicated uh, according to all the latest guidance. Um, as you go like, all right, well, um, all right, the CQC has been alerted. So let's see what the CQC have to say. But the, the judges found in this case that the CQC um, had received a had received a referral, had received a complaint, kind of going like, hey, this is uh, I've concerns about safety here, um, and that the process basically boiled down to CQC then gets back in touch with the trust, goes, um, who uh, we've had this complaint. What do you make of it? And then they go, the trust says, the trust refers it to one of the sides in the dispute who go, no, no, we think it's safe. Uh, and then the CQC go, yeah, we think it's safe. Or, you know, but it's it's slightly more nuanced than that, but not a lot more. It's going, so then, the, and then the trust produce in evidence to the people in the dispute, like, no, the CQC say it's safe and, uh, and they've got mm -hmm. someone on it. It turned out the specialist uh, who reviewed it was not like a nephrologist. It was, mm -hmm. it was someone from a different specialty. Um, and so uh, Dr. Mikanovich's complaint is that they weren't uh, the right person to make that sort of judgment mm. um, about a patient safety issue. I mean, it's very difficult when specialists disagree about stuff, but but that is something that was raised. But that um, that concern about kind of that the CQC maybe doesn't always have the right specialist on hand to look into stuff. Um, it's been raised in other cases, kind of in the Morgan Bay case. Yes, yeah, I was going to bring up Morgan Bay because I think we can definitely draw some parallels between that. Yeah, I mean, so uh, there's, it's, as we were talking about, this kind of the, the CQC, I think, has, tell me if I'm wrong here, kind of it's two, mm. two kind of investigations going on into how it assesses that, right? Yeah, so there's one into the specific um, treatment of the whistleblower surgeon um, Shayam Kumar, and that's kind of a barrister-led review that's still ongoing, and then there's kind of a wider internal CQC review of how it responds when it's given information of concern. So essentially whistleblower, you know, someone raises concerns, you know, about patient safety or whatever. And it's kind of how they respond to it as well. Um as he was he was working as um an uh advisor, a special advisor, I believe, in the CQC, as you know, saying he was unfairly dismissed. Yeah. And there's 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 lots of different kind of safety systems and sort of what the, the Mikanovich case kind of said to me was just like just how um just how unconnected those can be sometimes mm. so basically if if the top of a, of a department is like we're doing this then it's very very difficult to sort of get external um it, it can be very very difficult to get sort of external uh scrutiny of it that is that is consequential 
Um, and just finally on, on this one, Ben, and we might not know the answer to this, but was anything done about the concerns she raised back in 2018? Yeah, so, yeah, so there, was, um, there was there was a review by uh, by the GMC kind of into the, into the practice. Um, but I asked the trustee, do you still do this? Um, and there, there were things in the judgment about, uh, you know, so one of the concerns she raised was that someone died um, as, as a result um, uh, well, after having had this this treatment. But that sort of the. So this is all in the judgment um, but that the role of the treatment in the patient's death couldn't be assessed um because it wasn't part of a clinical trial so when you're doing clinical trials and people uh come to harm then there's sort of processes to look at that like you might expect um but this wasn't covered under a formal clinical trial so it wasn't assessed like that um and the trust says yes there is a small number i think two patients who are still uh having this treatment and they've been fully informed and given their their consent uh and, and that kind of thing um and like you know to to be fair departments want to innovate these are these are like highly motivated professionals who you know are working to try and improve patient care but like there are i don't know there, there are it, 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 it appears in the national system um ways that uh, there are gaps basically um in how that gets assessed mm. Mm. Thanks very much, Ben. I think now is a is a good time to move on to our second, as I said, very different story, but still about you know employment and terms and conditions. But Alison, th um, this is an investigation that um, you've done. So perhaps first of all, I said it was about wholly wholly, on, wholly owned subsidiary companies. Not an easy phrase to say. Do you think we could just sort of set out what this is and you know what jobs people are doing? Here. Yes, of course. I mean, many foundation trusts will have wholly owned subsidiaries for a variety of reasons. Um, the ones I was interested in and ended up um, FOIing trusts about were those that were set up to provide some of the very basic sort of estates tasks. So cleaners, cooks, um, other estates and facilities, portering and so forth. There was a bit of a rush of these being established about 2017 to 2018. And they were at the time opposed very strongly by a number of the, the unions who were concerned about what they would mean for workers terms and conditions. Mm. So, yeah, so what what did you find out and kind of how did you you go about it in this piece? Well, I, I tried to identify a cohort of trusts that had set up these um, cleaning, catering, portering mm. type subcos, as they're called. Mm. Um, and I used the Freedom of Information Act to try and find out a little bit about the staff they employed. Now, when staff were transferred from the NHS, they were um, affected by TUBI, but basically they transferred across on their existing terms and conditions. And generally, those staff who have worked there since 2017, 2018, remain on um, their, their agenda for change terms and conditions. However, these are 
jobs which probably people don't stay in that long um so there's relatively high turnover so a lot of people would be new to the the organization and generally they have been employed on different terms and conditions i only found two trusts which employed everyone on agenda for change um northumbria and york teaching hospitals um and they basically put all, all, all their staff on the um, agenda for change terms and conditions so you know the the lowest paid would be on band two and so forth all the other trusts had some variation um, from AFC um, in a number of cases they were paying lower than AFC for the sort of lowest paid workers I found people were being paid as little as 9.50 an hour which of course is the national minimum wage um, it's not what is seen as being a living wage and it's certainly not in line with AFC mm. um, in other cases people might be paid kind of the same as AFC but perhaps slightly more but they wouldn't get the sort of unsocial hour enhancements that um, NHS workers are used to which can actually be quite significant can be up to 85% on top of your basic rate and what I thought was most striking was that this group of staff on the whole was denied access to the NHS pension which as we we all know is a really really valuable pension scheme instead they were enrolled in a pension that perhaps they contributed 5% of their pay to and their employers contributed as low as 3% as against the over 20% that the employers contribute to the uh, um, NHS pension. Mm. And you've, you've named some of the, the trusts who have who employ these staff on agenda for change, but who are some of the worst offenders? I feel like we should <laughs> we should name and shame. Well, yes, I mean, there were there were a number that um, uh, paid very very low rates um i'm just trying to find my list of them <laughs> um a blackpool was one that mm. it, it's subco was paying i think 950 mm. um south warwickshire was w w said that they had been paying 950 to a small group of staff which had, had now been increased um the same for gloucestershire hosp hospitals mm. um they're paid 950 um, but that was a group of people who only worked at weekends. So in actual fact, they were being paid slightly, slightly more than that. Mm. Um, so those were some of the main ones that were really paying very low rates, but almost universally, as I said, that, that they were paying um, far less into the employee's pension than they would have to if mm. they remained in the NHS. So. I think there was probably some very substantial savings on costs for the trusts involved. Yeah, I, think, I was going to say, what do we know why? Well, um, the cynic in me says that this is about saving money and you can probably save several million pounds a year by not having this group of staff in the NHS pension. Mm. Uh, you're saving anything up to about 17% of, uh, of their um, pay, mm. which is... Mm. An, an astounding amount mm. um it's it, it sticks in the gullet slightly because these are i think probably some of the lowest paid people working for the nhs i mean mm. we're, we're talking people who are right down on on on, on band two um maybe part-time as well um 
they're not getting the benefits of being in the NHS, which rather makes the rubbish of the, the idea of one NHS, one team. In fact, one trust did say to me um, that its um, subsidiary was outside the NHS and can therefore determine its own terms and con conditions of employment. So absolutely no attempt to um, to recognise this staff as part of the broader NHS workforce. And mm. it's also concerning that knowing the sort of people who do these jobs, they're probably disproportionately people with um, protected characteristics. In particular, I think there will probably be quite a lot of black and ethnic minority staff amongst them. And they are the ones who are um, being disadvantaged and ultimately not getting a good pension out of this. And perhaps as a result of that, um, facing poverty in old age. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And is there a sense that unions are concerned about this I, I feel like a few years ago I was often seeing unions putting out releases about um, you know supporting staff and employed by these subcos but it does seem to have quieted yeah. down a bit more recently I it, wonder what you think it, it, it has I mean back in 2017 and 2018 the unions mm. were fighting this um, tremendously and they did manage yeah. to to head off the creation of subcos at some trusts they're not really said very much about it since. And I did contact some of them and say, you know, I'm doing this story. Well, would you like to talk to me? And none of them came back. Mm. To be fair, they are in the middle of a far greater employment dispute. But I yeah. do feel that the, this is a a group of staff that have almost been forgotten, um, forgotten by the NHS to some extent and forgotten yeah. by the unions. Um, for example, this group don't. Um, take part in the staff survey. They're explicitly excluded under mm. the conditions of the staff survey. And I did a, a piece of work a couple of years ago um, looking at whether they um, contributed to the, the, the workforce race equality standard data that the NHS um, publishes, publishes each year. And again, generally, they weren't able to take part in that. Mm. I think that's quite significant because, as I said, I think these the, these are a group of staff who probably are disproportionately black and and minority ethnic and that rather skewed the res data i feel for some trusts mm -hmm. um yeah we, we know so little about them and surely it would it would skew the results even further it's 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 really you know it's really concerning um I wonder as as well kind of apologies if you if you said it already but kind of how many people are we talking about here is it is it do we know approximately it's hard to give a a, a good total, um, partly because quite a lot of trusts did not reply to my Freedom of Information Act request. Mm, um, mm. I think I might have a word with the ICO about passing on the names of some of these because um, there, there are repeat offenders, as we all know, and none responses to, to, mm. to FOI requests. Um, so some trusts, we're talking seven, eight hundred, even a thousand staff. Mm. You know, if you if you look at a, a a trust and say, right, how many cleaners do they employ? How many uh, people work in the the catering? How, how many porters? You you get into the hundreds very very quickly. Mm. And this group of staff, they can't go on. Can they go on strike? Is there any way they can sort of? You know, I I, I don't know to what extent they are mm. unionised. I mean, they would they would one would have thought that. Um, Unison, GMB, Unite and so on would see them as um, natural members of a union. Yes. I suspect many of them actually aren't in, in unions and aren't particularly organised and therefore 
probably aren't um, taking much action. And I wondered, did we, did you get a response, manage to get anything from NHS England on this? Because it, it feels like a, you know, it's it's really worrying, and you know, it, was, it brings up huge ethical questions as we've sort of covered. Well, it it, it does, yes. I mean, I think there's a lot of questions here around um, inequalities. Ultimately, mm. you know, mm. the, these people five years ago were doing their NHS job with NHS terms, conditions, pensions, um, maternity and sick pay, which is obviously um, another area where some of these subcodes are, are offering a lot less protection to staff. Mm. Um, there, there was kind of second tier of staff working for the NHS. Um, now, the response of some trusts and some managers has, has been, well, if they weren't working for us, th- these might be jobs that were outsourced anyhow. And obviously, um, some of those companies have um, terms and conditions which don't match the NHS, in particular around the pension again. So. You know, there's this feeling or it's kind of out of the frying pan into the fire, because if as an organisation you have to look at outsourcing to make those savings, um, then it doesn't help that group of staff to be employed by an outsourcer rather than a wholly owned subsidiary. Um, that may be true. It still feels a little bit like this very, very badly paid group are, uh, are, are the ones that are having to take the, the brunt of some cost savings in the NHS. Yeah, I, I, I remember kind of I talked to a bunch of people in London over the last year or so about this. And it has been interesting that some places, some trusts seem to have made deliberate moves to insource people again and to put them on yes. those terms. And, and you think, wait, oh, you know, good work. I think there's like... The, it's common enough now that on my travels I came across a sort of consultancy that specifically help uh, that exists specifically to help trusts bring staff back in house. On the other hand, though, um, <clears throat> I was talking to someone not so long ago about uh, about an earlier effort, an effort their predecessor had made, um, their leadership predecessor had made to bring to do this. Um, and it ended up with this really difficult situation of then having staff doing the same job, but on three separate rates mm-hmm. of pay. And then they said right. that if we if we brought it all up to the level of the highest, which you're sort of on a bound to do, really, it's going to it's going to cost us money. We just don't have. They said like that's kind of. Um, yes. Not, yeah, not to say that they should bear the brunt of of the savings, obviously, but just that kind of as 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 savings become a bit more of a real thing, trusts have to do again, you know, Mm -hmm. as the money runs down and stuff, as the COVID money runs down, um, uh, then then it's going to get increasingly difficult to do stuff like that. Yes, I I wonder if we might begin then to see more pressure to create these sort of organisations. Insourcing is interesting because the the one that I'm quite familiar with is the London Ambulance Service, which decided it wanted to insource all its make ready staff. Those are the people who take an ambulance that has been out on call all day and sort it out, basically clean it, uh, restocking them and things like that. Mm. Um, And they have been outsourced and they're being over a period of three years taken onto agenda for change um, terms and condi- conditions. And that is costing London Ambulance um, Service quite a bit of money. I think it's runs into the millions. 
but they obviously feel it's worth doing because I imagine there's first of all a tremendous morale boost to these staff who suddenly start getting paid, being paid more, and that obviously does does help with morale. But also I think they probably feel a bit more part of that organisation, a bit more part of the wider NHS rather than working for a, a company which provides a service for to the NHS. But in terms of the 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 pay. I mean, we are ending up with some very odd things where you can have two people working for a wholly owned subsidiary who, because one had been there at the point in which they were stupid across and kept the agenda for change terms and conditions, they will have completely different um, payments. You know, so someone may be on 10.36 an hour, someone else may be on 9.50, here be in the NHS pension, she won't. Um, the unsocial hours um, payments will be different. And I know of trusts which have um, these sort of wholly owned subsidiaries where they've inherited some staff from a previous outsourcer as well as some of their own staff and some new staff. And they end up with you know, three completely different sets of terms and conditions, which must be really quite galling for some staff to, to work under. It's a bit of a mess. And also, like uh, pe people have made this point, but I think maybe not loud enough about the nurses, Th this staff group as well, like like most people who work in a healthcare setting, they came into work in 2020 before there was a vaccine. Yes. You know, yes. kind of like they, they, were, they put their lives at risk in a way that yeah. nice was. And some of them like, died. Didn't. I mean, yeah, um, disproportionately, think... this, these staff groups yes. like died. Yes, absolutely. And they are important jobs. You know, someone who is cleaning is ultimately responsible for an element of infection control on a ward. And you want them to come in and be well motivated and do a bloody good job, frankly. And yeah. uh, perhaps if you are employing them and you're treating them as one of the t team, they are going to do that. Mm. But I a call wonder... out for, for, for Yeovil District Hospital, which were when I went to talk, talk to them about their their um, wholly owned subsidiary, um, they actually said they're looking at this again because they realised that they've got st staff wor working alongside each other mm. who are on different terms and conditions, mm. um, very different terms and conditions and pay. And they saw this as a concern and they're reviewing it to see what they can do to Yeovil. Mm. Is it easy for the, the staff to move from the, these companies and into a gender for change they're employed by the trust? Would it effectively be resigning from that job and reapplying for another job so people yes, just don't do yes. it? Mm. Yes, I imagine it would and I'm mm. not certain whether it would count as continuous um, employment with the NHS. Yeah. Um, you know, you might say want to move from a, a cleaner or a catered job to being a, a housekeeper on the ward and that would be a fairly natural move has many of the same skills mm. um i'm not quite certain how 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 that would be treated whether you would be seen as moving from outside the nhs into the nhs mm. well i think on that note i think we better wrap up the podcast this week but thanks both ever so much for joining me and just a reminder to all listeners our podcast is available every week on our website and wherever else you listen to your podcasts and please don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already and you can find more health policy news and analysis on our website hsj.co.uk thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next week <laughs>